When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Scaling Up Services, where we speak with entrepreneurs, authors, business experts, and thought leaders to give you the knowledge and insights you need to scale your service-based business faster and easier. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeld. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Chris Mealy. He is Managing Partner at Software Pricing Partners. We're going to talk a little bit about the whole issue of pricing and how do you go about pricing and pricing strategy. Obviously, we want to gain as much kind of market share as possible, but we also don't want to leave anything on the table. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about the strategy around this. And we're going to talk a little bit about how service companies can benefit, learn from, utilize some of the strategies we use in software to think about how to price, uh, how to package their services in different ways. And then obviously a lot of service companies are developing software solutions as well. So some examples uh, of how companies, service companies are thinking like software companies, becoming software companies at different levels to uh, increase their reach, increase their the services they're offering, the solutions they're offering, and hopefully their profits and their scaling. So with that, Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we kind of dig into all the things going on in pricing strategies today, let's get a little bit of background. How did you get into this? What was your professional background? Give us the story. Well, I started at Ernst & Young, so that was the I should date myself. That was the, the <laughs> mid-90s when consulting was pretty hot. Yeah. And I was always on the software side. And so at some point, funny enough, you don't know where your path leads at the time, but they got me involved in engagement economics, which is a shorthand for profitability and, and managing everybody's hours and billing and oh, yeah. all that stuff with the client. And so relatively quickly, right out of college, I'm like, so let's see, I build... I made the firm a million dollars and I got a bonus for 15,000. Like I'm on the wrong side of this formula. So that was sort of my first entree. And then in the late nineties, I broke off with a friend and built a software company. And I would be there for the next uh, almost 15 years. And around 08, we decided to move our software for on-prem because that's what it all was uh, during that time frame to the cloud. Uh, mm-hmm. And in doing that, we sought out help and I was getting really frustrated. I did, first, I didn't know that there was a, this thing called pricing. I didn't really think of there would be a whole entire set of firms that do pricing. But everybody that I talked to kept talking to me, up, to me about understanding a customer's willingness to pay, which in my experience selling, like, you know, I was selling software for five grand and next thing you know, I'm selling it for half a million. I mean, I, 
I just didn't think anybody really understood what they would pay for your API layer and, and things that are in the techie world. And then the second thing was that everybody kept talking to me about, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, call it car dealerships, plane tickets, train tickets. And here I am in software and, I, and I'm thinking like, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so after a long list of presentations, we stumbled on software pricing partners at the time. So I became their customer and got to know the founding team. And one thing led to another. When I exited that uh, venture, I ended up here and I never really would have predicted this particular career. In fact, <laughs> my wife, I remember in the beginning, there's just so much, you know, math and science to what is done. I remember thinking like, you know, in college, they tell you like, well, when are you ever going to use this again? And then here I am stuck in this role doing all this math and science. I was like, oh, uh, but it is a whole lot more to it beyond that. And I ultimately fell in love with it. Yeah. Yeah. And what are some of the kind of dynamics or, or, you know, variables, levers, factors that you kind of end up grappling with when you get into this whole kind of pricing strategy consideration process? Give, give us a little bit of an overview of what you actually look at when you look at pricing. Well, you, you have a natural tug of war that's going on. So in the world of software or services, and we probably should sort of carve out that our, our firm specializes in monetizing intellectual property, and we don't care what form it comes in. It just happens to sometimes come in the form of code and a product or a tool or something. It can also come in the form of a service. In fact, that's a wonderful test bed, a wonderful sort of place where you plant your intellectual property seeds and they might grow into products later because it's pretty quick to bring a service to market, unlike maybe a product that carries with it an investment. And in fact, many of our customers are services firms that are moving over, but the uh, moving over towards more product and recurring revenues. And the, and the tug of war is that the, the company wants to be paid fairly and we can talk about what that means. Yeah. And the customer, frankly, doesn't really care if you make money or not. They just want a really good deal and to feel as though that that their particular scenario is being addressed appropriately which makes them feel special it doesn't have to be that you give them a discount but that you've you know customized thought about crafted sculpted something you know just for them because everybody's unique i'm sure mm -hmm. you've heard that phrase before <laughs> and so that that tug of war of you know they they don't want you to go out of business don't misunderstand and not all buyers are maybe as aggressive but in general you know, they want to minimize and you want to maximize. And it's in the middle space in between that we settle on a number. And often our customers complain that the value that they deliver is very rarely captured in what is ultimately agreed upon. And they struggle with getting paid fairly across the broad array of customers that they serve. And that's kind of the, that's the game, if you yeah. will. I'm curious how much of this is coming up with kind of a, a price or a pricing strategy for a given scenario or for a given transaction relationship versus, you know, helping a company strategically figure out, well, look, you should really package this differently and sell it to a different person because they're going to see it as much more valuable. And, you know, we'll be able to charge a lot more. We'll have a much higher margin on these things. Like, is, is this dealing with a particular situation or helping finding new situations where the pricing model is going to be more advantageous? Well, it's both. And so this gets into fairness. And when you are onboarded into the world of software, for example, or even services, there is a tendency to craft that packaging and pricing and maximize on a customer by customer basis, which if you think through what that means, that means that you and I went and bought 
a service from a consultancy, for example, and let's just say we bought exactly the same thing, like we paid two different net prices, and sometimes those net prices are wildly different, and that was like the 90s, right? And, and I think that story of that unfairness that I'm describing probably originated with the oracles of the world where we're just, you know, selling and landing deals, or it might have originated when you start your company and you're just landing deals and trying to make the revenue flow. But at some point, you know, the organization needs to grow up and be more consistent and uniform and transparent. And when we talk about monetization, how you get that velocity, which means more customers, is you have to treat those customers fairly. If, if I put a data point out in the market where you and I compare notes one day on a flight, you know, post-COVID when we can actually talk <laughs> and see each other's faces, <laughs> th th then like you don't want us really comparing notes because unlike in our culture, it's okay to, it's not okay for me to ask you what you paid for your first class ticket, for example, but, you know, asking you what you paid Ernst & Young for a services engagement for a, some sort of uh, scope of work that might've been similar to mine. I mean, that's going to come up real quick and somebody's gonna be really pissed off in that conversation if there's a big variation. And as soon as that travels in the ecosystem of buyers, which it does, because that story gets a lot of legs. Well, now the buyers know the game is up and procurement gets on board and now we start dragging things, you know, everything just moves in molasses. Now we take a 30 day sales cycle out to 120 days and things go very wrong very quickly. So we've, in a sense, taught the audience that a deal can be had, taught the audience of buyers that a deal could be had. So by bringing in uniformity, we eliminate those data points and then we can compress that cycle because people know they're being treated fairly and everybody just wants to be treated fairly. Nobody yeah. wants to buy a used car, right? Yeah. And so in, ser in services and software, that's a problem. Why, why is that example different? I guess, why, why do we look at you know, what I paid for a, a, you know, a plane ticket. And yeah, I mean, I guess I, consumers are, I don't know if they're, if they understand or if they've just submitted <laughs> themselves to the process of, yeah, one person may have paid $800, another person may have paid, you know, 195 Like that seems like we're accepting of that. But then on other cases, we're not as accepting of, you know, the fact that, you know, different situations might have different prices around it. Like what's, what's the difference there? Well, we all have those I mean, even if you were buying a, even if you were buying a service gig on your car, I mean, the first place we typically go is to our friends because you don't want to be taken advantage of. And there's certain brands. I, I actually think it's a more of a brand characteristic or issue than okay. it is. I mean, nobody really has this discussion. I mean, I, I hate using B2C examples if we're doing B2B uh, yeah. pricing because that, that's very, very different. But if you think about it, like there is not a story that we've ever heard where somebody went into the Apple store and got like 80% off on their <laughs> iPhone because that story doesn't exist because because they've never done it, right? Yeah. And, but that story exists in other ecosystems and we're all very adept at picking up on that story. And I think yep. that in the example of the plane ride, you know, if we were talking about Oracle, well, we're gonna be comparing notes real quick, but if we were talking about another software company that was, you know, super transparent with their pricing, which, you know, not many are, many of our customers are, but not many software companies do this and not many services companies do this either, then there's just less questions, less concern. And so I think it's a, bit of a yellow or red flag that gets alerted in our mind when we kind of sense and suspect that, you know, there's a deal to be had. And if you ever wanted to test this, you could pick up the phone and call most major software companies. And I'm sure we've all procured software, whether it's sales software or support software. And 
the telltale flag is the salesperson says, well, you know, I, Bruce, I'm so glad you called me in January. It's near the end of the month and I think I can get you a pretty special day. I haven't even like <laughs> asked you your last name yet. And we're already, you know, kind of wheeling and dealing. And that, that culture is still on its way out. I think yeah. it's been accelerated with COVID and the desire for transparency and trust and those brands that embrace that and go through the hard work of standardizing and becoming more consistent with their packaging and pricing and treating customers uniformly and fairly are, are winning just huge amounts of customers over top of the older styles. And yeah. I do think they're older and they're, you know, they'll still be, it's like COBOL, you know, they're still, I remember I programmed on that <laughs> well, when I was in college, there. like there's still COBOL out there. I mean, it's just nobody who talks about it. So there's, you know, eventually it'll still be out there, but like nobody will be talking about it. Very, very rare breed. Um, so tell me a little bit of the process. Like when you get engaged uh, with a company and they're kind of working with you or you're working with them on, on these issues, like where do you start? Like what are the first couple of questions or the first things you start to look at? Most Software companies and software companies, but, but most software companies are really gapped on two things. Number one, they don't have a complete list in any sort of repository of like, here's all the value we provide and what is covered. I mean, they might have your standard blocking and tackling, buying personas and all the stuff that we use in the sales process. But when it comes to like the value that we provide, it's amazing how many companies privately and publicly held, funded and venture backed and not venture backed, really can't enumerate all of the aspects of what they do. It's kind of mind blowing if you think about it. And so the first bridge to cross is you have to break apart your service into like these little, I imagine it's like these little Lego blocks that my son has that I can barely get my fingernail underneath because they're so tiny when he builds his Lego <laughs> Batman. But like until we have all the Lego pieces on the board or on the table, it's really hard to build like Ultraman, right? Like you just, you just can't get there from here. So like at some point, the organization needs to be led through a series of brainstorming and working sessions to kind of say, well, this is what we're dealing with. And that can be super complicated. That can be super straightforward, but you are trying to not list out, well, I have this sort of basic service or capability, but like, this is the problem that I solve and this is how I provide value. It, it's, it's drawing the link of how your customers are using that service or that capability and getting value. And it's in that complete picture that you begin to say, okay, so now, now I have this complete list of things, Lego blocks that I can deal with. Now the question is back to your original point, Bruce, you know, am I selling to maybe uh, the wrong audience or a better audience? And so it's, it's amazing, but you know, what makes your customers ideal? And the problem that we have in the world of pricing, which we call monetization, and monetization just means packaging, pricing, and other elements around holistically thinking about how your revenue model is built and how you're gonna make money. The problem with this is that not everybody, everybody tends to, to describe their customers in the ways in which would match on how we would pull names from a database. So we think in terms of industries and employee counts and SICs, or others might try to describe their customers in more blocking and tackling marketing tactics. Like these are my buying personas and these are the people I see in the sales process. And both of those perspectives are horribly wrong when thinking about monetization, because you want to think about the ways in which customers experience value and the ways in which they share similar needs and wants has to do with the problems that they're trying to solve and, and the manner by which they are interested or not interested in this sort of 
list of capabilities that I described. And so if you can describe customers in ways in which they are ideal for you in the use of your services, it's much more powerful than describing them with standard characteristics like employee size, SIC, industry segment, blah, 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 because those things don't really describe somebody. That What describes them is how they're achieving value and how they're using those services and turning that into value for their customers. And once you do that, you end up with this sort of bottom-up view of your go-to-market strategy that says, aha, so this is what everybody values, and I can put them in groups, and I can simplify things, and I can say, well, now that these customers are all similar, well, gosh, they're in like seven different markets, and I thought they were so oddball, but they're actually very similar in what they need. And yeah. when, you, when you do that, which, again, customers, our customers, and many publicly and privately held venture, not venture back, you know, they end up uh, not sort of having this playbook. They end up with the more mechanical description and that doesn't, that pollinates a lot of mishits into the marketing and sales process because it just lacks a level of specificity. It lacks the wrong lens. And so when you have these two pieces to the puzzle and you put them together, it's like the, you know, the fog of the glasses sort of comes off. You're like, oh my gosh, so this makes a lot of, this is who I should be talking to. This is how I should be structuring my service offering. This is what they really need. And, and you begin packaging to the sweet spot. You can think of it as a sweet spot on the tennis racket. Yeah. It doesn't mean you won't shank a ball now and then off the rim, <laughs> which I do quite a bit in tennis, but like you can still pull those customers in. It's just that you might tell them, I know you want to feel special, Bruce, and because I know that you're not ideal, for example, because I've gone through this homework assignment, I know you want to feel special and you really want to buy below this minimum threshold, but I'm sorry, we don't do that. And so then you might have to make a decision that says, well, I'll buy at the minimum threshold, even though there's some services I may not use, or you'll say, no, thank you. I won't buy. But often the services organization, when they start, especially, I just want to serve everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I call it chasing money and they just want to chase money. There you go. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. Like I, and, and it's funny, I, literally a, a publicly traded company define their ideal customers uh, as ones that have money. <laughs> like, well, you know, we could probably be a little bit more specific. And if we're more, and of course we can be a lot more specific and we were, and that, you know, aligns the organization towards uh, much more efficient customer acquisition. We're going to take a quick break to hear some words from our sponsors. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. And now back to our program. Any, any examples? I mean, I, I would love to ground this in just like a, an example of how, you know, a company and, and you don't need to name names necessarily, but just like how, how you've gone through that process or how a company have kind of discovered that kind of sweet spot. Well, we call this having a perspective. And often we're so wide around the customer, we treat this more democratic. Like, let me survey everybody and see what they want. But, you know, you have a perspective and you're a, you're a smart guy and you have a mission that you're beholden to in the organization. And you probably have some objectives that you're trying to achieve, profitability or maybe industries you want to get into or things you want to create as new services to, to try. But the having a perspective means that you are going to go through this homework assignment. And if you picked a particular 
beachhead rather early on or later that you felt was ideal and then you started to get into it assuming you have the appropriate sort of reporting or closed loop kind of view to say hey i'm putting out this hypothesis so everything in pricing and packaging we always talk about is always a hypothesis i mean there just is no this is a game of assumptions and and looking at the mosaic and good judgment so it's a hypothesis that needs to be validated then we begin making tweaks and this is the this is the core of the issue in pricing whether it is services or whether it is product again we're just talking capabilities right? think of it as intellectual property we don't care what form it comes in then we want to ask ourselves the question you know what is it that we're ultimately trying to get the customer to sign up for so if we're going through sort of this exercise if you will we are trying to get a process to be instantiated to be set up and if we treat this as a characteristic of the service we tend to think of it in the form of an event you know we build the service we spend all the time on the fun stuff ideating what we're going to do for our clients and how great it's going to be and oh my gosh we can turn this into a product one day and this will give us recurring revenue and everybody's like you know jamming in the session but like nowhere in the session is are we talking about sort of the the structure of the things that we're talking about here packaging pricing and other elements and when you think about pricing as an event or a characteristic, well, then you tend to do it once and then it's like done. But if we talk about it as a hypothesis and we talk about it as a process, you begin to see that this is a function that should be existing inside of a software company or a services company. And it's called monetization. And we would mm -hmm. propose in larger companies that has a chief monetization officer that does <laughs> this as well, because it's horribly complicated as, as the organization gets larger. And the reason for that is because we're in intellectual property. And the wonderful thing about intellectual property is it can change tomorrow in a services in a software mindset, we have to code, but we can still do that pretty quickly if we prioritize it. In services, like, you know, three guys can sit in a room and be like, well, let's add that as part of the service. And, and if we don't have this process, well, then you could imagine over the course of a year, somebody would say, well, it just seems like that service delivers so much value, Bruce, and we're only charging X for it. And of course, what happened over yep. the year is it's now twice as big, but nobody really thought about monetization along the way. So now we've, you know, kind of disjointed the value that we provide we're delivering a ton more from you know what the clients are are paying and that's where the problem lies and so this is all just a long-winded way of saying that monetization this is back in the 80s we had proposed this this was actually the first firm that started software pricing in the world and what was proposed was that that monetization is part of the product design it's part of the customer experience and if you think about that you'll realize that if you've ever <laughs> Just as a, you asked for an example, my son came up to me and fell in love. He's eight. And he fell in love with a game called Infinite Lagrange. And it's like this, you know, build battleships, Armada, Battlestar Galactica kind of stuff. And built into the game is you can upgrade your base for ever longer waiting times. Like we're talking like 24 hour wait times. But don't worry. If you get impatient and want to accelerate that, you can spend these coins that you can buy for real money. So, huh, I wonder, I wonder if it's possible that that monetization strategy affected that game design. And of course it has, because who wants to sit, hey, Bruce, do you want to go do something together uh, in a game on Friday? You're like, yeah, okay, great. I'll send my... I'll upgrade and, uh, oh, shit, it's going to take, you know, 40 hours to do that. And now you and I can't play on Friday because we're waiting. But if you want to spend real money, you can accelerate it. So that's an example of a wonderful game whose customer experience has largely been ruined 
by the monetization strategy. And I think the more that you think about that product design also includes how you're going to package and price for it, the more that you'll have very successful products and services. Yeah. And in terms of the actual, I guess, pricing mechanic strategies, I mean, how much are you looking at, you know, kind of one-time fees versus uh, subscription versus, you know, rev share versus use space pricing? I mean, what how do some of these different kind of mechanical models come into play when you look at what strategies you'd be using for which clients? Well, we call that licensing. So you can think of that as like, what's in the quantity field of the contract? Are you counting hours, which is pretty common in services? And and there's a an analysis that goes with that and a framework and ways to think about that. Likewise with packaging, likewise with pricing, which is what makes it so complicated because we have actually separate teams that specialize in each one of those three disciplines, and then we have to integrate them together. And, and that's why it's really difficult to have like one person do this for you. You really want a, a, a team. And uh, much of what we're talking about here, by the way, is, is uh, how pricing intersects selling. That, that's, that's the magic, right? So in licensing in this quantity field, you're trying to, well, let's use time and materials as an example. The quantity is the number of hours. Now, the problem with the number of hours is, let's take a lawyer, for example, you could be billing $400 an hour, which is, you know, arguably kind of obscene from most buyers who don't want to be spending money on legal, but then like you start getting billed in 15 minute increments and that's super obnoxious. But like, then you get into intellectual property, uh, lawyers, six, 700, $800 an hour, you know, experts in that arena can be over a thousand dollars an hour, but you're never going to see, you know, <laughs> Bruce at 10,000 an hour. Like it's just not, it's not reasonable. Like nobody can emotionally, well, I'm sure there's somebody, but like most of the time, like 99% of the time, there's a, a cap there. And that's the problem with that decision and why many people want to move towards consumption or recurring and other things. Because in a services organization, you tend to start in time and materials because you don't have a library of projects by which to derive, hey, every time I do this type of an assessment, I kind of burn 200 hours. And hey, every time I do this other kind of deliverable or work product, usually in a services organization, you have a WBS, work breakdown structure, deliverables, work products, and you've kind of figured out over the years how to deliver those routinely, and you can therefore set a price. The trick, though, is that that's technically cost plus, which says I'm looking at my labor rate, I'm paying Bruce $100 an hour and I'm billing him out at 400 or when I was at Ernst & Young you're you know paying me $15 an hour billing me out at 250. And so uh that that function is if you think about it decoupled from the value that that assessment might be providing or that work product might be providing. So the first step that a services organization has to go through is to get off of time and materials and counting up hours and custom scoping to hey What's my WBS? Like, what are my deliverables? What are my work products? And then how are those specified and how much time does it take? And once I get away from time and materials, my first shift is to get more into I'm selling work products. Well, guess what happens when I sell a work product? Like, I don't have to sell you my hours anymore. So if it took me 20 hours and let's say $1,000 to give you a work product, well, if I quoted you a work product at $5,000 and correctly tagged its value, I can now break the mold from the hourly rate. So that, what I just described, is a bit of a licensing switch in the sense I'm not charging by hour, I'm charging on some other basis. 
And uh, it's not exactly a licensing switch, but within the context of this discussion, I've now transformed the organization to break the link to my cost, right? Yeah. Break the link to the limit that buyers have of, I'm not paying Bruce $10,000 an hour. But hey, funny enough, I'll pay him 10,000 for an assessment. That takes him an hour because it's templated. You, you see what yeah. I mean? So that implies a sophistication level. And then the next step after that is to begin to say, well, do I have tools and other things before I can get into um, higher forms of margin, I need to not sell a body. I have to sell something that's more like a tool or software or something that gives me some economies of scale, which can drive my margins. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the old, the joke of the guy hanging the picture, you know, bills him a thousand dollars for, for hanging the picture. He goes, I could have put that nail on the wall. And he goes, yeah, putting the nail wall is, isn't that hard. It's the 10 years I've learned to figure out how to, how to put the nail in the right spot that I'm, you're, you're charging me or that I'm charging you for it. Right. So the knowledge and the background, not the actual swing in the hammer itself. But how, I guess how, um, how can companies kind of start thinking about this? Like if I'm a service company and I'm kind of in this tyranny of the hourly rage and they want to figure out how to break this connection, like where's the best place to start? Well, the best place to start is to go back to kind of the start of the conversation, which is, you know, what what's that list of all of the things inside my service offering that my customers value? And then secondly, you know, how do I describe my customers in the ways in which my service solves their problem and they convert that into their value. So that's sort of the, the, the two, the two stepper there. And then underlying that is how do I collect my historical projects? You know, it's amazing how many companies just don't have a repository of the detail of what was sold. I mean, they might have something in Salesforce that says, ah, it was a 15 grand assessment, but like what, you know, assessments are in this example, aren't all created equal. Right. So, yeah. you know, there's varying, I mean, that's the beauty of intellectual property. I mean, it's a gradient. So if I was a service organization and I had a um, five different types of projects, we'll, we'll just take project type three, you know, I would, I would want to go through the history and I'd want to begin saying, okay, was it really type three or was type three customized in some way? Like this was really 50% yeah. of type three. And I'd want to start saying, well, like, what did I charge? And I, and, and what you're going to see is that as you begin collecting that data and adding fidelity to it, it gives you a nice map on, on your ability to extract value and that is your initial perspective on your value. And that's a much superior way of determining what your customer, you know, it's very dangerous to survey somebody who doesn't control the budget and says, I pay a million dollars to Bruce per hour. You know, next thing you know, you see that in a pie chart somewhere, right? Aggregated up across 10,000 Bruce's and everybody's like, oh, heck yeah, let's raise our prices. And then like all the demand disappears and nobody can figure out why our sales have plummeted. Like that's not that's just horribly inaccurate and there's no science underpinning that approach whatsoever. But developing that perspective, if you think about that service and its evolving offering, if you could understand that it was sort of in this shape in the beginning and then it was you know, twice as more valuable at the end and in the beginning I was charging $15,000 for the service and now I'm charging $45,000 for the service, that across all of my services and my customers gives me a really nice picture of an initial perspective I might have at value from which then we can debate, well, that was horribly undervalued because all those deals just sailed right on through and like nobody even <laughs> asked a question on price. Yeah, exactly. No one pushed back. Or like the friction was so terrible and we could barely get a deal through. And I think that you know, like that gives you, again, those Lego kits on the table to say, well, this is kind of our starting point. But often the organization and the teams will jump in and start ideating on 
adding things to the service, morphing the service into a recurring thing, you know, like all this other, or just babe ruthing it where you sit down and go, you know what, I really think this should just be a flat fee up front and then a per hour component and we're going to do this other thing and let's roll. Like that's all just make them up stuff. But if you start with the reality, it's just a much more science-based discussion, a much more accurate discussion. And I'd wrap up by saying when you have a vibrant services ecosystem and you begin messing around with prices, unlike I can pull a feature back, maybe, you know, some levers that you pull in pricing, you just can't pull back. So you have to be really, you know, if demand dries up because you doubled your prices and then you decided, well, I'm just going to, oops, next month, put those back where they were. I mean, don't be surprised if demand doesn't bounce back. Chris, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you and the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Softwarepricing.com. Excellent. Make sure the URL is in the show notes here. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bruce. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at scalingupservices.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at scalingupservices.com slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.